Hello, it's February 9th, 2024. My name is Simone, and this is 90s Crime Time. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of 90s Crime Time. And if you're new to 90s Crime Time, welcome to the show. So, I know many of you who have followed 90s Crime Time for a while are probably like, what in the world happened to new episodes? Like, what happened to Simone? Um, As a matter of fact, I've received many messages about where the show was. And from the last time I released new episodes back in October, which is crazy, to now, I have gone through a lot. Too much to even talk about right now, but I'm finally back with new episodes and I plan on having regular episodes released in a timely manner from now on. Again, I sincerely apologize for leaving you all hanging with no new episodes for so long, but I hope you all can forgive me and listen to the new episodes I have in store. And we're still in season five, and this episode will be a little bit different in formatting because I don't have that much information on this case. But yeah, I wanted to still bring it to you uh, because I'd never heard of this case before and I've never heard of it talked about any on any of the crime blogs I've researched or, you know, anything, any news articles or anything. I just happened to pop up on it one day and I was like, oh, wow, this is intense. So I've got to bring it to the audience. But with that... Let's dive in to today's case. The year was 1997, and in the city of Detroit, Michigan, the city had been known for decades as the home of Motown Records and several sports teams, including the NFL team, the Lions, the NBA team, the Pistons, and more. Detroit was also known at this time as a city looking towards a big revitalization with the development of new casinos, skyscrapers, and businesses. Because after all, reports state Detroit by that time needed all the positivity it could get. According to reports, Detroit's population started to rapidly decline by the 90s due to Detroit's unfortunate drop in employment, cost of living, and rapid increase in crime. Detroit became so crime-ridden by the 1990s that the city was considered one of the most dangerous cities in the world. And when a report came in in March 1997 of a horrific local crime that occurred to a group of innocent people, it would leave many wondering if the violence of the city would ever stop. In the following case, you'll find out what this event was, the investigation, and the aftermath 
in a case I title, Done. On the morning of March 11, 1997, at the Comerica Bank, located on the corner of Meringue and Duchess Street in Detroit, a 77-year-old customer named Stanley Hayes made his way to the bank around 10 a.m. Not much is known publicly about Mr. Hayes, but what was known was that he and his wife Marge had been married for over 50 years had no children, and not a lot of family. However, the Hayes were very close to their neighbors and had lots of friends and social gatherings, even into their senior years. Until around February 1997, when Marge had an aneurysm that left her comatose. But Stanley visited his wife every second he could in the hospital and rarely left her side often bringing her flowers. However, when Mr. Hayes went to Comerica that morning to use an ATM, little did he nor his loved ones know that he wouldn't make it back to visit Marge. According to reports, as Stanley drove his van to the ATM, he noticed a large police presence surrounding the bank. Not really grasping if there was an emergency or not, Stanley exited his van. But even as police were telling him to stay inside the van, Stanley proceeded to walk towards the building. Just then, a tall man wearing a camouflage jacket, baseball cap, and jeans swiftly ran past him, but then came back and suddenly grabbed Stanley. The man was armed with a shotgun, and as he dragged Stanley away to a nearby alley, he began to shoot at police, but didn't hit anyone. But for reasons unknown, once the gunman realized he hadn't hit any officers, he turned the gun on Stanley and shot him in his head, killing him. Immediately after, police hailed several bullets at the gunman, killing him as well and he was later identified as 21-year-old Alan Lane Griffin Jr. But as police investigated the scene, what they realized was that Alan had done something way bigger than what they thought. But who was Alan? Well, let's go back some years to 1976. Reports state that back in 1976, Alan was born to his father, Alan Sr., and his mother, Paulette, in Detroit, into anything but great circumstances. Not much is known about the family, 
But Allen Sr. was said to have been involved in criminal activities off and on for years, and he spent some time in prison for various offenses. And according to reports, Allen Jr.'s mother didn't have much of a maternal figure in his mother Paulette, even if it wasn't totally her fault. You see, Paulette had been exhibiting signs of mental issues for a while, and by the time she turned 26 and had children, she had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. Adding fuel to the fire was when Alan Sr. was sent to do another stint in prison, leaving Paulette even more overwhelmed with being a parent. And it all became too much for her when a tragic event occurred in 1983. Reports state that on September 23, 1983, when Alan Jr. was seven, Paulette called 911 to tell them that her three-month-old infant, Joanne, wasn't breathing. When emergency personnel got there, Paulette told them she couldn't explain how Joanne stopped breathing, but just simply, she wasn't. Joanne was eventually stabilized, but authorities and social workers figured Paulette could no longer take care of her children. Therefore, Alan Jr., his brother Edward, and his other sister Brianna were placed with various relatives and shuffled through different foster homes while baby Joanne was adopted by an aunt. And Paulette was ordered to undergo mental health treatment. By the mid-80s, after Alan Sr. was released from prison, Alan Jr. was allowed to live with him but that time was short-lived after Alan Sr. was shot and killed shortly after his release. By the time Alan Jr. reached middle school, he was living with his grandmother, and his future seemed bright after he joined his school's basketball team. It seemed to get even better for him and his siblings when Paulette was granted her children back in March 1987 after she completed treatment and agreed to take her medication. However, even though he was back with his mother, that didn't stop Alan from his battles. Because by the time he turned 12, Alan was arrested for burglary, but his charges were later dropped. Even worse, Paulette's mental health declined again, leaving Alan to go back and forth between her house and his grandmother's home until Alan was permanently placed again with his grandmother at age 16. And that's when he decided to give up on school and dropped out in 1992. It's unclear what Alan did right after he dropped out, but by the time he turned 18, he was arrested for selling crack cocaine and carrying a concealed weapon. For these charges, Alan pleaded guilty and was sentenced to serve time in a boot camp. And after serving three months, he was released in February 1994. In the years since after his release, reports say even though Alan tried to find stable work and stay off the streets, he fell into the wrong crowd and continued to hang with drug dealers and other criminals.
By the late 80s, Alan began to date a woman named Candy, and together they welcomed a daughter named Portia and a son Antoine before breaking up. Fast forwarding to 1996, Alan married a woman named Vicky, and in the same year they welcomed a son named Alan III. To Alan, even though he'd been through a lot since childhood, he thought he'd finally have the family he hoped for. But reports stated just shortly after marrying and welcome Alan III, in the fall of 1996, he and Vicky broke up, which forced Alan to move in with his aunt and then with his uncle. Even worse, Alan's grandmother, whom he felt the most love from and who took him in when he was younger, died in October of that year, leaving Alan very hurt. His uncle tried to guide him and train him in the family business because he knew Alan was not doing well mentally. But nothing could keep Alan happy except for his children. However, reports state when Alan tried to visit baby Alan III one day in early 1997, Vicky told him no, and it made Alan spiral even more. He was angry that he had to pay child support for a child he couldn't see. He was angry that early in 1997, he spent more time in jail for failure to pay child support. And he was angry that he felt he had no one to lean on. Again, his uncle tried to calm him down and listen to him. But reports state he told his uncle in March 1997, quote unquote, You know... I'm thinking about doing something to hurt myself, but I don't want to kill myself. I want someone else to do it for me. In response, Alan's aunt and uncle sent him to a therapist. But even after a few sessions, his aunt and uncle could tell nothing was changing with Alan. He was still angry and depressed, and there was nothing else they could do for him. Reports even state that his mother, Paulette, tried to talk to him. But every time she did, he would apparently hit her. But she still loved her son and wanted to help him. Reports further state that he told Paulette, quote unquote, I don't have anything worth living for. I want to die. Just a few days after Alan made these statements to family, on the morning of March 11th, 1997, at the Comerica Bank, business was going on as usual, when Alan burst in with a walking cane and shotgun and ordered everyone inside to get on the floor. However, he seemed incoherent, leaving customers and staff confused as to what he wanted them to do because he didn't demand any cash or possessions. But still they knew Alan had a gun 
and dove on the floor, fearing for their lives. As he roamed through the bank's lobby, customers and staff were on the floor covering their heads, and some laid out on the floor with their arms and legs spread out. Some mothers were also in the bank and covered their children with their bodies. Then, Alan ordered everyone lying on the floor to start singing the Lord's Prayer, and he ordered the bank's security guard, Vereen Brown, to lead the song. Alan then joined them in song, but curiously, he began to shout obscenities between his singing. Reports state that Alan then pointed the gun at Vereen and told her he was going to kill her. But when he became distracted, Vereen took the opportunity and fled to the bank's basement. Upstairs, as Alan continued to hold up hostages, he roamed away from the lobby to some of the bank's offices. And during this time, some customers fled with their children, while some hostages were too paralyzed with fear to move, fearing Alan would see them. Those who stayed on the floor noticed Alan going toward one of the bank offices and saw him standing over a man curled up on the floor in a fetal position. Alan then raised his gun to the man's head and pulled the trigger, but it jammed. However, when he tried it again, the gun went off, killing the man. After that shooting, Alan then came back to the lobby to tell the people to lie down, even though they already were. Witnesses then saw Alan go to another office and shoot and kill another man. He then went back to the lobby and shot a female employee in the face, critically wounding her. Alan then witnessed a mother and her two children fleeing out the bank's front door through the parking lot and across a busy intersection. But instead of reacting to their escape, by this point, Alan was trying to figure out an escape plan of his own. And also by this point, unbeknownst to Alan, an assistant manager had already pressed a silent alarm, alerting police to get to the scene. Since he didn't realize the police had been called, Alan made his way out the front door quickly. And as he did, witnesses stated he had a crazed looking smile on his face. But he was met with a small group of officers commanding him to drop his weapon. Alan didn't know what to do at this point, but as he was thinking of his next step, that's when Mr. Hayes crossed his path. As mentioned before, as officers commanded Mr. Hayes to get back in his van, Alan took the chance and made Mr. Hayes a hostage, took him to the alley, and shot and killed him. Then the police shot and killed Alan. At the scene, as paramedics were heading to the bank to tend to the victims, they noticed on the way there a man lying near the entrance to the nearby Denby High School's outdoor track. They got closer to him, and shockingly, 
he had a gunshot wound to his face, which pretty much blew off most of it. But he was still conscious. Soon after they discovered the man, a 911 call came in at about the same time, alerting them of the injured man because people in the neighborhood saw him get shot. At this scene, police canvassed the area and learned from the neighborhood and the man's roommate that he was 23-year-old Eric Skalnik, a recent police recruit applicant. Reports state that Eric was at the high school to exercise on the track, preparing him for his physical exam with the Detroit Police Department, with his roommate's puppy Pitbull in tow. Shortly after he started to run, neighbors, including his roommate, heard a gunshot. As they looked out, they saw Eric lying on the ground and called for help. Witnesses also told police they saw a man running away from the scene wearing camouflage who got into a nearby unlocked Volvo car with keys still in the ignition and drove away. After putting two and two together, and after remembering Alan was wearing a camo jacket at the scene, police theorized Alan was the culprit behind Eric's injury. Meanwhile, back at the bank, a large crowd gathered to see what exactly happened. Loved ones of employees swarmed the scene to find out if they were dead, alive, injured, or okay. Well, eventually police announced to the media and people at the scene that 38-year-old bank employee Lisa Griffin, who was shot in her face, was seriously injured but alive. But that 25-year-old employee James Isom and the manager, 52-year-old Stanley Pijanowski III, were dead at the scene and confirmed that Alan Griffin Jr. was behind it all. And they continued and said that there were no answers as to why Alan did this. After Alan was named as the killer, the press interviewed his family later that day. According to reports, Alan's aunt told them, quote unquote, My nephew broke of God's commandments, thou shalt not kill. For those families, I hurt for them because of the actions he did. They didn't ask to die. He didn't give life and he didn't have the right to take it away. The press also questioned locals in the neighborhood and around Detroit about their opinion on the massacre. And surprisingly, some blamed the incident on race. Since Allen was black and all the victims were white, some felt Allen took his anger out on white people and stepped over the customers in the bank who were black. However, some felt it wasn't racial at all. They figured Alan was just crazed overall 
and it didn't matter about race. Whoever he wanted to kill, he killed. Later on, the media talked to many residents who were upset that after Comerica expressed their condolences, they announced that the bank would reopen the following Monday. To many, that was just too soon and didn't allow family members of the deceased to grieve in a respectful period. However, reports state that after the bodies were removed and the scene was cleaned up, the next day on the 12th, a maintenance worker entered the bank's boiler room around 2 p.m. when he noticed a woman down there. And it was the security guard, Vabrine Brown. The worker called 911 and paramedics took her to the hospital to be checked out for stress and dehydration. When questioned about how they missed Vereen, police said they heard about the security guard running away, but they figured she'd run out of the bank and had no need to search the boiler room. They were later criticized for this action. As the time went on after the massacre, questions remained about why Alan did what he did. Some suggested Alan was inspired by the infamous North Hollywood shootout that occurred at another bank a month before in California. Some of his family thought that due to his failing marriage, the death of his grandmother, and not being able to see his youngest son made Alan snap and he took it out on other people. But a report from the Detroit Free Press and United Press International stated that a lawsuit from some of the family members of the victims suggested that Allen may have gone on a rampage because of a failed alleged paid relationship with one of the victims, Stanley Pijanowski. Reports state that before the massacre, Allen was working at a car wash and one of his frequent customers who came for detailing was Mr. Pijanowski. The report goes on to say that in the lawsuit, Mr. Pijanowski, an openly gay man, used his power allegedly as a bank manager to help lovers secure loans and other money endeavors as long as they paid with their bodies. The families alleged that because Stanley frequented Allen's car wash up to four times a week just to get his car detailed was suspicious enough. And the fact that just days before the massacre, Stanley allegedly stopped dealing with Allen and giving him money allegedly. Due to this, it's alleged that's why Allen snapped. Further, they allege Stanley told co-workers he felt unsafe, but didn't tell them why. But the lawsuit alleges it was because Allen was allegedly angry about no longer receiving money. However, when the families of Stanley and Allen heard this, they thought it was ridiculous. Stanley's family claimed, although he was openly gay, he was a devout Catholic and would never pay for sex. 
Alan's family said Alan was never known to sleep with men, and even though he was financially unstable, he would never do sex acts to make money. Police even made a statement saying they believe Alan just simply snapped and chose Comerica Bank as a random target. But to this day, no one knows for sure why Alan Griffin Jr. committed such carnage. In May 2015, Eric Skolnick passed away. The story of the 1997 Detroit mass shooting comes from the sources of the Detroit Free Press, the New York Times, United Press International, and others I'll put in the notes. All right, I know that one was a lot to listen to. Um, as always, well, most of the time, I'm going to say a little bit about how I feel about this case. It's not going to be long, I promise, guys. It's just the little things I've noticed. Um, number one, I I don't know if Alan had mental issues. I don't know if it was just a, a combination of things from his childhood to his adulthood that just made him snap, like many suggest, um, because, you know, his mother had schizophrenia his father was in and out of in and out of prison he was put along in a lot of foster homes scrambled around to different family members he you know witnessed his youngest sister almost die i still don't understand how she stopped breathing but i guess reports don't either because i couldn't find anything about why baby joanne well back then baby joanne um stopped breathing paulette said she didn't know why baby joanne stopped breathing but it was a big tragic event for the family, and um, I don't think Alan Jr. really recovered from that or being, like I said, not really stable in his childhood except for the time he was with his grandmother. And, you know, maybe when he was a kid, he had the thought that maybe he could live with his father. But like I mentioned, after he was released from prison that one time in the 80s, he was murdered. Um, I don't know if that's a solved case or unsolved case. I didn't really look into that, but... I do know that shortly after his release and after he was um, given back to his father, um, Alan Sr. was shot and killed. Um, his mother was on medication, but it's, he's, her mental health declined again. I don't know if it's because she didn't take her medication or the medication wasn't working, but he was no longer allowed to really live with her. Alan Jr. was no, long, no longer allowed to really live with her. And... After he dropped out of high school, I, I don't know why he did. Maybe he was just too angry or sad at this point to continue on with his studies. Um, and maybe he did think, like I mentioned in the story, that he thought he would have the stable family once he married and had his children, but it didn't turn out to be that way. And I don't know why um, his estranged wife stopped him from seeing Alan the Third. Maybe she spotted some mental health issues and didn't, you know, want to keep her son safe or maybe they had an argument a few times or maybe he was just angry and she wanted to keep her child safe. Um, but I understand why he would be angry because he couldn't see his son and still had to pay for child support. But at the same time, like I said, I wonder if 
his estranged wife kept the baby away from him to keep him safe because he may have snapped on his son. I'm not saying he would have, but maybe he would have. I don't know. Um, But I also don't know. No one really knows why he chose Eric um, on the uh, outdoor track field near the, the high school near the bank. No one knows why. Maybe he was just clearly random. They didn't know each other. They had never met. Um, I don't think he arrested him before because he was only a recent recruit, a recent applicant, Eric was. And he was, you know, shot and almost killed um, by Alan. Maybe he was just a practice target, unfortunately. No one knows why he was shot. Just he took it out on everybody, Alan. And, um at the bank i i i only read what the report said about the report said about the bank manager Stan, stanley pichinowski about the alleged gay for pay um transactions using his power allegedly as a bank manager to get sex out of men and in return give them money and loans and other things from the bank but that's only what a report and a lawsuit alleges I don't know what came of the lawsuit. I, I'm just reading what the Detroit Free Press put out there and the United Press International, UPI, um, and just put it in the story just to see if any type of motive anyone could come up with. Um, but no one knows to this day why Alan Jr. did what he did. And it's really unfortunate for even his aunt and uncle and other family members who tried to help him, um, you know, his children he couldn't see and... Now they're without their father, and it's just really, really sad all the way around for the victims, and in my opinion, Alan's family as well, because they did try to help him for the most part, including Paulette, who had her own issues. And with that, that's it. Thank you for tuning in to this brand new episode of 90s Crime Time, and I hope you were intrigued. If you liked what you heard and have not done so, please leave a review for 90s Crime Time. Hopefully a good one, but if not, I understand I am still trying to get better um, to make it that almost perfect show. You can also follow 90s Crime Time on Instagram, where I frequently post other 90s stories primarily on the weekend. Um, I do plan on having one, having a few out this weekend. So look out for that if you follow on Instagram. And do not worry. I know I was gone for a very long time, but I plan on having new episodes on a steady basis again. So look out for a new episode very soon. With that, stay safe and healthy, and I'll see you soon for a brand new episode of 90s Crime Time. <laughs>